Well, good morning, and I just want to take a moment and uh, thank you for praying for uh, the trip that I took the week before to, to um, escort Aaron and uh, all of their things out to Houston, Texas. We dropped uh, Aaron's family off at Founders Baptist Church, not literally dropping them in the parking lot and leaving them there, so in case you were wondering, but we uh, got them all set up, and, um, and then last Sunday night, flew home, and I texted him this morning, said I was praying for him, and and because uh, this will be, I think, the first morning he teaches uh, the youth there, and so very, very excited about this next season for them, even as he continues with his seminary training there. I uh, lost my voice while I was on the trip a little bit. That, that might be a plus for Aaron, because we were captive in a car, and he may not have wanted to hear me go on and on and on, and another thing, son, and another thing. <laughs> But uh, so I'm still uh, not quite there vocally fully. I've asked Darren to kind of step in tonight just so I could rest it a little bit. So um, isn't it great that we have so many pastors we can just choose from, you know? I mean, you can call them anytime and they'll be ready. In fact, they like it when I get sick. So, (laughs) but he'll be with you tonight in the Word, and so I thank Him for that. Take your Bibles and look with me at Luke's Gospel. We are beginning chapter 15 this morning, making our way through this Gospel, and uh, as you know, just following the steps of our Lord Jesus as uh, redemption happens, and it was promised, as you saw in the prophecy of Isaiah, it came about when Christ came to earth to bring about the ratification of the new covenant And uh, we, of course, see it now so many um, centuries later, but here we we go back into the history of that ministry that the Lord had while He was on the earth and watch His entire approach to redemption and His gospel work. We love that about the Lord. I hope you never lose uh, the wonder of the whole ministry of grace that does explode upon uh, a darkened heart and that does bring about our conversion. If you've been a part of this church a month or two, you've no doubt been to an evening service of baptisms or you've seen one online. And of course, these services top the list really of our favorite parts of the body life that occur here at this church. Because in the waters of baptism, we get to hear everything that's familiar to us, but it is a reminder of so many crucial things that that recalibrate us in the way that Jesus is going to do as he begins to confront yet another uh, area of blindness in this chapter. When people are in the waters of baptism, we hear their testimony. We get to see how a sinner is pursued by God through unique providential circumstances and and then the way that uh, in those circumstances the person is humbled and brought low and And then at some point, the gospel is spoken to that individual, and we hear of that sinner's repentance and faith. And each testimony has differences to it because circumstances are different, but there is a familiar ring to each one of them. There is a thread that that draws them together and parallels and overlaps. And, And it is all the themes that are important for us in fanning the flame of our own understanding of the gospel and not losing our urgency in it. We hear of a proud life that became humbled through circumstances, and we're reminded that we had to be humbled, and that makes us uh, worship the Lord in wonder. We hear of a dead heart suddenly brought to vibrant life, and that reminds us that, that it's a sovereign God that saves 
and that apart from his grace, we would never turn to him, ever, not even for a moment in genuine faith. He must do the work of drawing and convicting and granting. We hear of a sinful past that promised a person happiness, and they chased it and chased it, and it never delivered on its promise. And that person suddenly found themselves crippled with guilt, and then we hear that the Lord offered forgiveness and the guilt removed. See, whenever we hear the the cry of newborns in Christ, our hearts are suddenly lifted above the noise of living in a fallen world, and we're carried along by a flood of these wonderful experiences, the first of which is no doubt joy. You're reminded to to the result that you rejoice in it. You go back to the gospel urgency of what it was when you first came to Christ. You know the grace and power of Christ on a daily basis, but sometimes that flame for the urgency of the gospel begins to wane a bit. It gets dimmed in the challenges of life, and those kinds of experiences recalibrate us. We're reminded at those times of the gracious providences that brought us to the end of ourselves so that our eyes were open. We hear about a person's sinful past and marvel at the mercy of God, and we stand in awe and say, well, how could he ever think of a person like me? And again, that stirs up your wonder about the gospel. And then upon hearing that story of God's grace, your heart explodes with hope because you think about people that are outside of Christ, people you love, family members and friends and coworkers and your neighbor and people that are coming across your path and up to this point don't know the truth or don't want to listen to the truth or have rejected the truth, and your heart fills with hope once again because sometimes even when you're praying for someone, so much unbelief and so much gospel rejection can turn us into cynics. We need services like that. We need reminders like that. You would think that if we experienced the miracle of transformation in conversion, that the flame of that praise would never die. It would always be fully ablaze, but that's not the case. The sad fact is that for a variety of reasons, we can lose that sense of rejoicing. We can lose that uh, urgency about the truth that we have had on occasion. As I said, there can be so much unbelief around us that we turn into cynics, gospel cynics. We actually say that the gospel is that which saves. It's the only thing that saves, but we, we act like it's powerless. Or you get into a season of struggle and sin, and, and in the midst of that struggle, you, you start to live as though the power of the gospel doesn't endure. Yeah, I had it back in the beginning, but it just won't endure. And that's because you're discouraged. Discouragement can steal your joy over the saving of a sinner when you hear about it. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I want you to know so-and-so gave their life to Christ, what's your reaction? They're like, oh, that's, that's, that's cool. That's good. Is your reaction sort of, uh, yeah, right. Well, we'll see. What is going on inside your heart? Is there wonder, love, and praise at any conversion? So much discouragement can take that joy away. So much unbelief can turn us into gospel cynics. And furthermore, just false professions of faith makes us live as though gospel grace is dormant. It's just not very active. But the worst enemy of 
excitement about the gospel has to be, it has to be self-righteousness. It has to be the idea that um, somehow that we're involved in the process, somehow uh, if people are going to believe we have to manipulate the process, or worse, you become religious, you don't really know the gospel, and so you look with contempt upon people who aren't as religious as you. And you could even become pharisaical as a Christian. A genuine believer can actually know the truth, love the truth, but then turn it into an occasion of pride and look with contempt at people who don't walk the way that they think they ought to walk. You lose your joy over the miracle of conversion because you've become proud. Instead of remembering that God alone saves, instead of remembering the miracle that it is, we lose the heart of God in it. There's nobody more gospel-centered than God. There's nobody more gospel-centered than Christ. And ultimately then, we have to align ourselves with what he thinks about the truth. And and you come to this section where there's parable after parable, and you, you sort of watch the unfolding work of Christ in his own gospel-centered urgency, you get realigned, you, you get confronted. He is always about the same things, and I love that about our Lord in his ministry, and so thankful that the gospels record these things. What is God's reaction to a soul suddenly redeemed. That is what you have here in the way that Jesus approaches people in society for whom some, there's this contempt, namely the Pharisees who look down on certain sinners in society and say, you're outside, you'll always be outside. If you don't dress it up like I dress it up, you're never going to to reach the level I've reached. And then there are other ways in which perhaps even sinful fear has gotten in there and you see someone in your sphere of influence and you just say, I, I just, I can't, can't share with them. They're just too messed up. Maybe for you it's cynicism. They'll never come to Christ. That person, I mean, they're so far gone. The hallmarks of Jesus' approach to the truth of redemption teach us things. And before we unpack the parables over the next couple of weeks, I want to look at his approach and these hallmarks. Let me read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll stop there. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told him this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, 
does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this is, this is really a pointed response to yet another one of those scenarios we have been so familiar with as Jesus heads toward Jerusalem and things start to crank up. His gospel interest is, is prolific. He is always on target always aligned with his father's will. He will bring about this new covenant. He will bring redemption to its full fruition. And on his way, he is aligned with the gospel-centeredness of his father. And it is very instructive to us, at least for several reasons, which I'll give you. But let's look at these hallmarks. I'm just going to give you four of them. And then next time, we'll look more closely at each of these parables. Hallmark number one of Jesus' approach to ministry, which may seem too simplistic for you, but it is worth noting, he is always speaking truth in the world. In other words, it doesn't matter where he is or where he goes or who the crowd is, he is always bringing truth to bear. And let me just say at the outset here that if you are a Christian, your Christianity cannot be private. It is not private. Sometimes I'll ask someone about a family member or a friend, are they believers? Because I've watched them or I've spoken with them and I, I don't observe anything overt that would tell me they're saved. And sometimes the answer will come back, well, they're very private about their faith. They're very private about it. Kind of a private person or they're private people. Well, beloved, that is typically code for I don't want to rock the boat and create conflict. Or worse, they're ashamed of the testimony of Christ. Or doubly worse, it's a false profession and they actually don't know the Lord. Any of those would be a terrible scenario. But if you're a genuine Christian, your faith is not private because it isn't your faith. It's faith granted to you in God. It's faith and repentance granted to you to come to Christ and when you believe in him, you're owned by him. And if you align with his purposes, then you align with his urgent gospel-centeredness. He was always bringing truth to bear. Why? Because he was saving those who had been lost. He was seeking sinners to talk to. That is why we're here. People have said sometimes, hey, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. Listen, I know why we say that. It's an okay statement if you mean by that that you should live a credible life so what you say has something to back it up. But on the other hand, some people have taken that statement to be a justification for being private in their gospel interest or quiet about what they believe in, and that is not what the statement intends. In fact, it's, it's not a good idea that you don't say anything, but you first live it, because I can tell you this, no one will ever be saved if you don't speak the gospel. Faith comes by what class? Excellent. Faith comes by hearing, 
and hearing by the word of Christ. There's no actual preaching of the gospel without using words. When the missionary team went into Thessalonica and preached, Paul said, our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but with full conviction. And so he puts the package together. It did come in word. It was actually a spoken gospel. And the only way for full conviction to be evidenced in someone's life when they believe it is to have actually heard it. This is why you always saw the Lord speaking up. It wasn't that every context he was saying something about the gospel to the crowd. He sometimes was away all night in prayer. He sometimes was instructing to the disciples about the fruit of the gospel. But when you found him out and about in society where he had an influence, he was always bringing truth to bear. He taught in the religious centers and yet taught on the hillsides in the wilderness to the villages that were outside of the city centers. He spoke to Roman officials as well as slaves. He opened up the truth to Jews in their orthodox state and he took time to explain the sinners as well to people who would never be at that level, the impoverished and the uneducated. He graciously pointed out the spiritual blindness of the proud and then at times reached out to the redeeming love with redeeming love to the brokenhearted who at the time had wrecked their life with sin. He spoke to women as well as men. He spoke to the aged and yet tenderly gave the gospel to children. This is our Savior always bringing the truth to bear upon people's spiritual state. Why? Because he knows two very important things that fan the flame of your gospel urgency. The two very important things. One, the nature of sin. The soul that sins, it will die, not just physically, but eternally. What must drive your desire for seeing someone hear the truth so that they might be able to respond to it is that you know what's coming. A Christian knows how it ends. The soul that sins must be separated from God, not for a week, not for a month, not for a small earthly lifetime, but forever. If you know what's coming, then you know why Jesus was urgent, because he knew the nature of sin. He knew that it would keep corrupting. God the Father knows that, and that's why he redeems with urgency. He knows it perfectly, comprehensively, and he has a supreme view of it. The second thing Jesus knew, the second thing his Father knows, our God knows, the second thing we ought to know as Christians is what his holiness demands. His holiness is not going to somehow allow for anything less than perfection in his presence. And so if his holiness demands absolute perfection, then he has to solve our problem because we're already doomed, and therefore there's an urgency of faith in Christ because no one has ever lived a perfectly righteous life except the Savior. You have to be in him. If you're not found in him, you're lost. Jesus was always speaking truth in the world because he wanted to expose everyone with a warning, with a message, with hope, with something to anchor themselves to instead of facing that day alone without hope. Now that means that his, his always speaking truth in the world meant that he would be in contexts that for some of us uh, turn us off. But the second hallmark that we always see in Jesus' ministry is that he was always open to needy sinners, 
always open whatever the context, wherever they were. Notice, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him. They came to listen to him, so that's the first mark. He's always speaking it. And the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him. Now, I'm not suggesting that he attracted the world to himself by how he lived. He actually repelled the world by how he lived because he lived such a holy life. The reason that some tax collectors, and that, that is to say outcasts, we've seen that over and over again, and those who were irreligious or pagans, just your everyday average pagan, the reason some of them came to him is because God was drawing them. He did draw a line in the sand. But had he been, had he not been gospel urgent, had he not been interested in giving the gospel to everyone, he, he would have discriminated his audience. Not so with Jesus. The tax collectors and sinners kept coming near to him and he kept speaking to them. Now, you know these two groups of people, they show up all the time in the gospels by name. You have tax collectors. These are the, these are the guys who came out of their fellow countrymen's uh, life and out of Israel. These Jews uh, got conscripted by Rome and they took taxes from their own people. And they didn't just take taxes. They went way beyond the tax rate and brutally and cruelly took money from their own countrymen to make themselves rich. They were the sellouts and they were hated by their own people. They were professional extortionists, vilified every day for selling out to the Romans. They were outcasts. Jesus spoke to them. He saw their criminal behavior. Of course, he saw it perfectly. You know, <clears throat> for decades, the church has been confused about contextualization. You know, we, we heard for really almost a generation and a half now, oh, you got to be all things to all men. Oh, 1 Corinthians 9, you got to be all things to all men. We got to contextualize, we got to contextualize. But essentially what that led to, strangely enough, isn't a, a clearer gospel spoken to everyone, calling everyone to repent. Actually, what it became was a way for Christians to become worldly. That's really odd. How could contextualization of the gospel produce a worldly church unless you had a wrong definition of contextualization. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul said, I'm all things to all men, he wasn't saying, I want you to go be like them, live like their ethics, to soften the barrier so they'll be interested. He wasn't saying manipulate their interest. The tax collectors and sinners that followed Jesus around weren't following him because he was extorting people for money as well, and they actually found camaraderie with him. Not at all. He was the holy, innocent son of God. They didn't find camaraderie with him. But when Paul says, I'm all things to all men, what he was saying is, I will never let my personal preferences get in the way of a gospel message or gospel interest. Notice, by the way, as well, that the contextualization sort of mantra that our culture has lived with has sort of told people to go into the world and on its turf and on its terms um, try to share. You never see that in the Gospels. You see them talking with sinners of the worst stripe, but never on the sinner's turf doing what the sinner is doing. It's always in somebody's home. They go to have a meal with them. It isn't, you know, the, we go out into the world, into the public sector, and live an unholy life so that we can manipulate some bringing down of the barriers. Not at all. Even Matthew, Matthew 5, he's called out of his extortionist lifestyle, he gets saved, 
And he goes to his house and gathers all of his friends at a dinner party and invites Jesus to it. Of course Jesus is going to go. He wants to give the truth to the wicked. I love that. But he's not going to raise any, not to go into their world and live like they do and raise questions about his character. He's not going to do that. So the contextualization, contextualization argument was a mistaken argument, and often passages like this are used. See, he was dining with tax collectors and sinners. Even the Pharisees, for their own purposes, would accuse him of wrongdoing in that. But that wasn't why Jesus did what he did. Jesus was always open to a needy sinner. Notice it's never all tax collectors, all outcasts, or every irreligious or wildlife pagan coming to Jesus. Not every one of them. Some came, some came with interest, and Jesus never turned them out. Why? Because we don't discriminate who gets the gospel, and it is precisely the needy sinner that must have it. Jesus said it is not those who are well who need a physician. It is those who are sick. You remember the Pharisees saw it totally differently. Matthew 21, Jesus said, I say to you, Pharisees, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom before you do. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You didn't believe him. But when the tax collectors and harlots believed him, you saw it and you didn't even relent then. That's right, because you think you're more holy than they are. Self-righteousness kills gospel joy because it sets oneself apart on one's own merit and then holds everybody else in contempt because you're not like me. And it does it for pride's sake. A few more chapters in Luke, we're going to get into Luke 18, and Jesus will tell about the publican and the Pharisee. And you remember they were praying in that imagined worship moment. The Pharisee was looking down at all those around him saying, I'm glad I'm not like them, oh God. And the publican wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven because he felt unworthy. Jesus has no problem reaching out to the worst of sinners. He doesn't do it in their ethics, on their turf, or raise questions about whether he's holy or moral, but he's open to needy sinners, always speaking truth. It doesn't matter the context. That's what infuriated the Pharisees. That leads then to that third hallmark we've always seen in Jesus' ministry, not just speaking the truth to the world and open to needy sinners, whatever their life has been, but three, he's always letting truth do its work. Notice verse two, the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them, and so he told them a parable. I love it. And Jesus talks to them, letting the word of God do its work. You know, there's an old saying, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. It's always the case, right? If you give the truth to a crowd, the ones that, that cry foul are the ones that are being convicted by the truth. Jesus just let it do its work and then began to minister accordingly. I remember reading one time an old story about a pastor who wrote a, he was a new pastor, and he wrote a general letter to the congregation about church attendance, and this deacon wrote him a scathing letter back, how could you pick on me like that? He didn't even name the deacon. Oh, I see. I give a general encouragement about church attendance, and you're the one that gets offended. I'm thinking he probably would have said to that deacon, hey, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs. 
Once someone speaks the truth and applies it to life, those who don't want it get offended. Those who are confused by it want clarity. Those who are intrigued, maybe being drawn, start to take interest. And those who love it run toward it. That's always how it is. Jesus didn't go around acting belligerent, nor was he ever unloving, even when he had to say hard things. It was to warn people, but he spoke the truth, letting it polarize the crowds, and people paired off depending upon their openness to it. Now, here are the Pharisees and the scribes. We've seen them before. They pretended to love the truth, but they were nothing in their gospel interest like Jesus Christ. They had all the earmarks of someone who was acting holy. They were, according to the law, very strict. But they would hide the truth from people because to speak the truth to somebody would have made them get close to somebody they didn't want to get close to because they considered that person lower spiritually than they, nor would they want to speak the truth clearly because the moment they did, they exposed their own fraud. You know how that is. Sometimes you're not living by a particular truth and you want to speak it clearly to somebody, but it just doesn't come out as strongly. Why? Because you know you're not, you're not living it. The Pharisees didn't want to be exposed in those things. It was all externals. And they wouldn't reach out to the tax collectors and the, the rank and file irreligious or pagans of society because they had convinced themselves that they were spiritually superior and they would be unclean if they touched a person, got near a person that they considered godless. Even the commentaries, the rabbinical commentaries would say things straight out like that. A person should not associate with the godless. Well, then how is the light of the gospel ever going to reach them? Sometimes God puts a pagan neighbor right next to you, and they live a life you don't want your kids to see, and you don't want influence to come into your home from their life, but you can't bar the doors because God has put them there as a neighbor for you to shine a light on their darkness. You can't be private about those things, nor can you manipulate it by picking and choosing who you're going to speak to based upon what they look like. I mean, sometimes you know what goes through your mind. Somebody really messed up comes along your path, and you're tempted to think, oh, they're too far gone. Wow. I wasn't too far gone, but they sure are. Really? Were we more savable? Because we hadn't messed up our practical life, moral life, as badly on a consequence level that they have, as they did? No. These guys were mumbling at Christ, and notice it says they were continually saying, that's the verb form here, they were continually mumbling, saying this, this man welcomes or receives sinners and eats with them. Man, these guys were given to the people of God to oversee them and shepherd them and help them be a light to the nations, and they had become dark, closed off, proud, self-righteous, unwilling. Jesus ends up the only one with his disciples who are going to talk to the tax collectors and sinners. He's the only one. Because he's always speaking truth. He's always open to the needy. And he's always letting the word do its work. This had been a history in Israel, by the way. This pride and 
and a discriminatory way in which people sort of, you know, mark others off and say whether they're worthy of the gospel or not. You know, I, I love the fact that the church is diverse. And when, when people ask, you know, how do you tell whether a church is mature? Well, a church should always have several groups of people in it. should always have those that have been under the word and obedient to the word for some time, and they become seasoned. They're kind of, they're kind of the spiritual core of your church. And then one circle outside of those are, are maybe what John describes in 1 John 2 when he says the, the young man in the church, sort of the, the, sort of the budding believer. He's not brand new, but he's, he's got a little bit under his belt. He knows how to fight Satan and temptation with the scriptures. And then you have the young child in the faith who's just brand new. You got them in the church. They're genuine believers, but vulnerable. And then you have outside of the circle of believers, from the core to the somewhat new to the really new, you have this fringe circle in the church, in and out of which is constantly coming that group of people that I mentioned. I don't know whether they're interested. They might be hardening. They might be soft, confused, needing clarity. But their lives are messy. And the church is not a cleaned up place where people aren't willing to talk to those people. Uh, we, we might have an environment where we do things the way we do and it has certain aspects to it that are aesthetically what they are, but, but we're all sinners and if we're like Jesus, we're urgent about gospel-centeredness no matter who comes through the door. We're not discriminating who we would share with out of pride or fear or those kinds of things. No, we're interested. We want the gospel to touch lives. That fringe is important whereby people stumble into a church, and eavesdrop on the truth. We're, we love that. We're not going to cater to it. Oh, you come in here, you don't want the truth. You're going to be uncomfortable, of course. We're not going to make you feel at home if you don't know Jesus. It's not our job to make you feel anything. It's our job to love you by reaching out to you with the truth, find out who you are, where you're at, and what's going on with your eternity. That's our role in the meantime, we're going to worship God as a worshiping community. You can eavesdrop on that, but you shouldn't be comfortable with it if you don't like it. And if you do like it, we're going to, we're going to pour gasoline on that flame to see if the Lord's awakening you to the, to the need you have. That's what we do. This was Jesus. This is what he did all the time. And the shepherds of Israel had lost sight of that. This was no different than when Ezekiel had to rebuke him. In Ezekiel 34, God had given them as shepherds over Israel, and he said, woe to you, because you don't take care of them. You take care of yourself. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? But you've not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. Ezekiel 34.4. And so this is what the sovereign Lord said to them. I'm, in a, I'm against the shepherds. Wow. Yikes. I'm against the shepherds. I'm going to hold them accountable for my flock. I'll remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds don't feed themselves any longer. I'm going to rescue my flock from their mouths. No longer, it'll no longer be food for them. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He is searching for that which was lost. He's searching for sheep. God's sheep. Look, if the heart of the church has lost that, we have to close the doors on that. We should not lose 
the urgent gospel-centeredness of God. And then a fourth hallmark of Jesus' ministry, I'll just introduce it and we'll expand on it later. The fourth hallmark, it's not just that Jesus always spoke the truth in the world as we ought to, or that he was always open to the needy as we ought to be, or that he was always letting the truth do its work, but he always targeted his audience with principles and drew out the implications and drove them home. He always targeted the audience, pulled out the principle, talked about its implications and drove it home. Notice how he does it here. They, the Pharisees are grumbling about this and so he tells them this parable. Well, what man among you? There's his target. All right, you wanna talk about the truth? You wanna talk about why I'm giving it over here to these needy people? I'm gonna... I'm going to target you for a moment because I want you to know that you are being exposed right now as opposite of God. You are opposite of the heart of God. You think you have the heart of God? I'm going to show you its opposite. I'm going to show you the implications of your thinking. What man among you, if he has 100 sheep and has lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open pasture, go after the one which is lost until he finds it. The search is on until you find it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders. And Look at this rejoicing. He goes home, calls his friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. I found my sheep which was lost. And here's the, here's the implication and the exhortation. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I mean, this is, this is drawing out the principle unpacking its implications to the target audience, and then making your point to that audience. And by the way, he, he makes a double point with his last sentence here. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That is, I believe, a, likely a double emphasis. The one emphasis is, look, if these people are already saved, yes, you need to shepherd them, but you need to go after the one that's lost. In other words, ministry is both. It's equipping the saints, raising them up to maturity, and it is reaching out to anyone who needs the truth. But it also has a double sting here in this sentence. The Pharisees were self-righteous people who didn't think they needed any, and Jesus just shoots a torpedo in that and says, you know what? There's more rejoicing in heaven over a tax collector, an outcast, and a sinner who comes to genuine repentance than, than there is over your religion. There's no rejoicing in heaven over your externals. There's no rejoicing in heaven over your self-righteousness. You're supposed to be the ones who are the light to Israel, and I'm telling you, heaven is overjoyed that one of these tax collectors or one of these sinners would come to saving faith. Heaven rejoices over that. You guys don't rejoice over it, but heaven does. You are completely opposite of the urgent gospel-centeredness of God. Same thing in verse 8. What woman, if she has 10 silver coins, loses a coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? Here's the heart of God. He is going after the lost. You guys have sat around in a club. You speak to no one. It goes nowhere. Because you're too busy believing in your own righteousness holding lower-level people in the practical world in contempt, and you have lost sight of the heart of God in your self-righteousness. 
This is what's happened, by the way, to all false religion. If you grew up in some ritualistic religion where you had to do rituals to merit your acceptance before God, then you saw it. You know what I'm talking about. If you grew up in Judaism, if you grew, in Orthodox Judaism, if you grew up in some of these other false works systems that are very prominent in cultures or that dominate cultures, where you have to work your way to heaven, then you know what I'm talking about. Those systems are closed systems, unless, of course, you have enough money. Some of those systems are open to anybody with cash, but not to the person who can't dress up their own life, who can't solve their own problem, whose life is messed up. That's the person that when they come to Jesus, he says, look, heaven rejoices when the truth hits someone like that and, it, and their heart is opened. This is a hallmark of our Savior's ministry. And of course, there are all kinds of messages we will unpack in the next couple of weeks in these parables, but not the least of which is the rejoicing aspect. God loves to see his people rejoice. He loves for the angels to rejoice. He loves when a sinner comes to repentance because all the, the people associated with the gospel rejoice. It's the gospel-centeredness of God. So it's, a, it's really in some ways a corrective for us. Do I always bring the truth to bear in every context that I'm in if I have the freedom to do so? That is to say, there are some contexts where you, like when you're on your job, you, some jobs you can't say a thing about the truth. You just have to be a faithful employee and a good testimony. But after hours, do you, do you, do you speak to anybody about the truth that you come across paths with or pray, Lord, open up a door if you can with the neighbor that I, I see over the fence, open up a door with a, that family member again. I know it's been closed with that friend, but open up another door. Jesus was always bringing truth to bear because he knew that the heart of his heavenly father is his heart. It's gospel-centered drive. It's, it's the, the gospel is why we're here. And, and when you share the truth, are you just open? I know sometimes you have a family and you're trying to protect them from worldly influences, but like I said, you can do that and still be a gospel influence. In fact, you ought to teach your children not to fear the encroachment of the world, the psalmist says. Don't fear the encroachment of the world. Be insulated by it. Don't isolate from it, but be insulated by the truth. I mean, I raised four kids in Los Angeles. I was fearful. I didn't want them influenced by that person and the way that person lives and what that person looks like. And yeah, I had all those thoughts as a, as a young dad. At the same time, it would have been sad if I passed on to my children something less than the gospel interest of God himself. Hey, we, we thought about ethics. No, you're not going to be influenced by those ethics over there. No, we're not going to be influenced by the world. We're going to be different and separate from the world. But we're going to be in it. And we're going to work to bring the word of God to bear upon our hearts so we're not of it, but we are going to be in it. That is the hallmark of the Lord's ministry. He's open. He's open. Are you self-righteous? You think you are more savable than the next person? No. Every dead heart coming to life is an absolute miracle of, of ex nihilo proportions. Life from no life.
And then are you letting truth do its work? Or are you trying to manipulate? Are you letting truth do its work so that when it hits, you just look at the response and say, good, good. I, I now get to respond to the people that are talking to me about what just happened. And I get to bring the truth to bear, and I get to pull out the implications. I get to target my audience, and I get to exhort them, hey, you need, you need to see your need for Christ. This is what we do. We let the truth do its work. We pull out its implications, and we speak it straightforward. This was the hallmark of Jesus' ministry. You see it again and again. Heaven rejoices when one comes. Do you? If somebody tells you that somebody came to Christ or they tell you, hey, I came to Christ, what's your response? I know we have to see fruit, but what's your initial response? Could it be? Wow, that would be exciting. You're not giving people assurance. You're just overwhelmed that God may have done another miracle. It's incredible. And without human strength can't be done. Or without divine strength can't be done. It can't be done in human strength. So it is a miraculous thing. Let's never lose that, beloved. Let's never lose the urgency of the gospel-centeredness of God. Bow with me.